Bonjour mes frères et sœurs, c'est bon d'être ici avec, avec vous. Uh, nous sommes la famille Jensen. What I just said is hello, brothers and sisters. Uh, it's good to be here with you, and we are the Jensen family. You see, in 2018, just as Art said, we left Ontario, California for Ontario, Canada. Yeah, didn't, not very far. <laughs> so we traded palm trees in 65-degree winters for white Christmases and minus 40-degree temperatures in February. Anyone want to come with us? <laughs> we were sent out by Foothill Bible Church uh, through the missions organizations, uh, biblical ministries worldwide, in order to plant churches in the cities of Ottawa and Gatineau, and uh, for us, the French-speaking city of Gatineau is where we're heading. So of all the places in the world, all the places to be a church planter, why Canada, why Quebec? Well, to put it simply, the churches in Quebec need missionaries and are actively seeking them to help them plant new churches. And this is because only a half to 1% of the population in Quebec identify as evangelical Christian. In fact, one of the largest evangelical church movements in Quebec has only 80 churches for a population of 8.5 million people. So what that means is there is only one church for every 106,000 people. So imagine Foothill Bible Church, if it was the only gospel-preaching church in all of Upland and Montclair. And that's what we're looking at. So for us, the first three to five years of our time in Canada can, has consisted and do, will consist of on-field training. You can see some pictures there of things we've done. This includes language learning, six months of, uh, well, a whole year of in-class learning for me, and then further for our kids, it was to be an all-French school. And uh, it also includes cultural acquisition. So we have to go and see the sites, visit different places that are significant, be a part of events that are important in Canadian life, and simply to learn to live life in and amongst Canada and Canadians. Um, shoveling out a driveway, right, of snow, that's an important thing to learn, especially when you grow up in Southern California. And finally, the last part of what we've spent our time doing and will continue to do is gospel ministry, evangelism, teaching, training, and discipleship with those we encounter. And uh, as we have, uh, by the way, just really quickly, if you uh, want, if you're not a part of our newsletters or updates, uh, there are, we've left some prayer cards uh, at the back there by the sound booth that you can grab and just send me an email if you'd like to be included in that. Uh, now, as we've lived the last three years in Canada, we've learned a lot. And in fact, one of the things that we've learned a lot about is the weather. Uh, and sometimes the weather can be a little bit frightening, to be honest with you. Uh, the weather can be scary. And in a fallen world, that's just the reality we live with. Certain weather patterns can be frightening. And for me, tornadoes are terrifying. I do not like the idea of a tornado. 
And some people, you know, some people are afraid of earthquakes, and we, you obviously live with that in Southern California. Those don't scare me so much, but tornadoes I find very frightening. Of course, tornadoes are very rare in Southern California, so I was grateful for that. But unfortunately, they happen every so often in where we live in Eastern Canada. And, uh, you know, if anyone's lived in a, in a place where tornadoes take place, you, you can observe certain weather patterns that produce these tornadoes, the extreme differences of, of the hot and cold temperatures colliding that uh, produce thunderstorms that often spawn these funnel clouds. And you can go outside and you can observe. You can see the, the big massive clouds gathering. Uh, you can hear the, uh, the hail falling. You can sense the change of color in the sky. But you don't know when or if a funnel cloud uh, will touch down. So nowadays, uh, and I don't know if this is a good or bad thing, I suppose it's good that we get a warning, uh, but also makes us scared. Now, nowadays we get warnings on our cell phones. So we would get those uh, during the summertime in Ottawa. And uh, you're given instructions to go either shelter in a basement or find cover somewhere. And I think that's an illustration of the times that we're living in today. We're living in troubled times. And the issue of COVID has really just been the catalyst to see these ominous clouds come together and condense over our heads. We're seeing the forces of darkness gather together and set themselves against Christ and his church. You see, the, the cherished biblically informed values of the Western world, which we have embraced and love, first in Europe, then in Canada, and now in the United States are being cast aside. And we're seeing it happen each day we look at the news. In countries where we felt that the freedom to practice our faith was secure, we're seeing massive cultural and political opposition, even persecution. Some of us are tempted to fear, to go run in the basement, as it were, to shelter. Others of us, perhaps to anger, to stand outside, to, to shake our fists at the clouds, as it were. But this morning, I want to talk about a different, and I say surprising, response. And that response is joy. Why joy? Because joy is an evidence of the work of the Spirit in our lives. Because the Bible exhorts us to rejoice always. Because even in the trials of life, James says that we should count it as all joy. Because Jesus told the disciples that seeing him raised from the dead would bring a joy that no one will take from you. Joy is something that the world can see, and marvel at, but not obtain. And such joy will make us stand out. But how do we have joy under the threatening clouds of trouble that are above us? Well, turn to 1 Peter this morning, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 3 through 9, and we will we'll see how can we have such joy in the midst of such difficult times. Let's read the passage together. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be re revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This morning, we will examine three solid supports which joy rests upon so that we can live life with invincible joy. Three solid supports that su support joy so we can have invincible joy. And these are the benefits of our faith, the proof of our faith, and the object of our faith. Let me pray really quick. Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to look at the joy that's found in knowing Christ. And Lord, uh, would you bring our hearts wherever they are at this point in time to find uh, joy that is available to us in Christ. We ask for your help in Christ's name. So before we, we look at these uh, supports, these three supports of joy found in 1 Peter, I want to first define joy for us, which is really key, because joy and happiness are not the same thing. The Tyndale Bible Dictionary, for example, describes joy as a positive human condition that can be either a feeling or action. As a feeling, joy is called forth by well-being, success, or good fortune a person automatically experiences it because of certain favorable circumstances. Another definition of joy is this. It is a quality and not simply an emotion grounded upon God himself and indeed derived from him, which characterizes the Christian's life on earth. Now, from these two definitions and looking at the use of joy in the Bible— I like to think of joy this way. It's the positive internal state of mind grounded in the unchanging person and work of God that breaks forth into outward expressions of happiness as good circumstances permit. Sounds like the title to a Puritan sermon, doesn't it? <laughs> so I'm going to say it again. It's, there's, it's a very multifaceted reality, right? The point is, is that it's, it's a positive thing. It's in your mind. It's the way you think about life. And it, it's based upon God, not ourselves. And when there's the opportunity, it just breaks forth in your life as an expression of joy. 
of happiness. Think about it this way. Joy may or may not include outward feelings or expressions of happiness, but it's like a glowing coal. You think of when you have a, a charcoal barbecue, and those charcoals may look black or maybe they're a little gray, but if you were to put something on there, like a, a piece of newspaper, it would just ignite, right? And joy is the reality that we have in us, this reason for happiness, for joy. It's like a glowing coal ready to ignite at every occasion for rejoicing. So what keeps this burning coal of glow, or excuse me, got that backwards here. What keeps this glowing coal of joy burning within our lives, whether in the good or bad circumstances? Let's look at what Peter has to say to us. Let's look at the three solid supports that we have, which joy rests upon, so we can live with this invincible joy. So, First Peter. Uh, Peter is writing to, he says, the elect exiles of the dispersion. That's in verse 1. Now, this could be a reference to Jewish Christians that are scattered throughout the Roman Empire, or to all Christians who lived as foreigners in the world, since for all of us as believers in Christ, this world is not our home, right? We're foreigners. Whatever the case is, what's important to realize, and the most relevant point in the text this morning, is that Peter is writing to people that are facing difficulty. Peter exhorts them in in chapter 4 and verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. So in fact, if you look at the whole book of 1 Peter, you see that the word suffer is used, or some form of the word suffering, is used 18 times. So it's very clear that Peter's writing to people who are going through a difficult time. And all of us are going, at one point, will go through and have gone through, and even in the moment we have in history, are going through a difficult time as believers in Christ. So we need to hear what Peter has to say to us. Peter then praises uh, God in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This word blessed is an adjective describing God, and it's it's an exhortation to us to say, hey, praise the Lord for this. We, We need to praise God for something. And what are we to praise him for? What are we to praise God the Father for? We are praising him for this, that according to his great mercy, in verse 3, He has caused us to be born again. So it's for the new birth. It's for the new birth that we are to praise God the Father. New birth is another way of describing the spiritual life that we have in Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus spoke to Nicodemus and he said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this new birth is in contrast to physical life. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. It's something that God has to do in your life. Now, we could talk a lot about the new birth, but what Peter focuses on is the benefits that this new birth brings. And that's what I'm calling the benefits of our faith. So we're looking at verses 3 through 5 for the first point, which is the benefits of our faith. And if you were skip ahead to verse 6, you see that this is the cause for rejoicing in the Christian's life. He says, in this, in the beginning of verse 6, he says, in this you rejoice. 
Well, it's all the stuff he talks about beforehand, which is the benefits of the new birth. So let's look at these benefits of our faith, the first support of invincible joy in our lives. The benefit, the one benefit of our faith is the hope that is brought to us by the resurrection life. We read, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're born again to a living hope. This isn't a hope that's something merely that is out there, right? It's not uh, something that we're waiting for merely, but it's something that's active in our lives. That's what the whole point of it being living is. Now, think about it this way. When the Apostle John wrote his letter, he said this. He, he gave reason for hope in the Christian's life. He said, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Don't all of us long to be like Christ? I mean, we struggle with our sin, and we just want to be done with it, and we want to be like Christ. And that is our hope. We will be like Christ when we see him. But that's, but what makes that hope living is that it's active in our lives now. Listen to what John goes on to say. He says this, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So what that means is that the hope we have in the future is acting in our lives right now. It is making us pure. And that's what Peter is talking about. Paul says it another way. He says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is a living hope. We have, as the benefit, a benefit of our faith in Christ, a living hope, an active hope in our life. In fact, you could translate this passage in 1 Peter this way. He has caused us to be born again to a hope living by the means of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, we're able to taste and enjoy the new life in Christ today. It is a foretaste of what will be true when he returns. What else do we have as a benefit of our faith? It's our inheritance in Christ. The new birth brings with it an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Riches are awaiting us in heaven that are so glorious, so good, so impossible for us to describe that the best way to talk about them is to say what they are not like. They don't perish. They don't fade, right? The good things we know now are infected with the virus of sin. And they're all in a process of decay. They perish. They're defiled. They fade. Put it another way. That iPhone you just got in two years is going to run much slower, be cluttered with data, have a shorter battery life, and might even have a virus. In four years, it's going to be the old clunky model that you give your kids or grandkids to play with. And in six years, guess what? You're going to be going to the nearest Home Depot to the electronic re recycling center so you can get rid of that, right? 
That's what our riches are like here on this earth. They are fading. They are defiled. They are perishable. Earthly treasures go out of style, become corrupt and useless, and utter, ultimately must be thrown out. But guess what? Our heavenly inheritance is assured to us by the new birth, and it will not lose its beauty. It will not become tainted. It will never wear out. So what does that look like? Just to name a few things. A resurrected body. Can you imagine that? A body with no pain. A body where you wake up and you don't have to fill yourself with coffee to start thinking you're alive. A body that is um, not only resurrected and glorified, but unhindered access to God. I mean, some of the greatest grief we can feel in our lives is because of our sin and the distance that that can make us feel to God. But no sin, no hindrance in our access to God. Um, glorified bodies, living in a new heaven and a new earth. Man, I can't wait. I don't know about you, but I can't wait for the new heavens and the new earth. I can't wait to have a glorified body. I can't wait to be in the presence of God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ without any hindrance, freed from the corruption of sin. Well, not only that, but the new birth brings us protection. The final benefit of faith described to us by Peter is protection. He tells us that it is by God's power that we are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We are being guarded through faith for salvation. The new birth comes to us as God's work. It is his act. He births us. He makes us to be, he causes us to be born again. But it's our faith that guards us. In fact, this word is a military term. It, it refers to a garrison like a fort, a military fort that encircles us and protects us and keeps us in him. It keeps us believing in him. However, while it is our faith and our active trusting in Christ for salvation, it is God's power that is upholding this faith. The assurance we have is that God is the one keeping us believing and trusting in him. Think about it this way. Our faith guards us like fortified walls, but God is holding these walls up by his power. Now, the result of these benefits of faith is joy. You see that in verse 6. In this, you rejoice. This isn't just any rejoicing. It's not just, oh, you had a nice day. It was a good day, you know. This is extreme rejoicing. It's a kind of joy Maybe that a couple might feel when they have not been able to have children for years and years and years, and all of a sudden they're pregnant with twins. It's the kind of joy we experienced when we first came to know the Lord, and we we're like, wow, I'm free from my sin. I don't have to obey my own sinful desires anymore. Perhaps you still experience that joy right now, or are faithfully fighting for that joy daily. Or maybe you've lost your joy. Maybe like me, you are in desperate need to hear 
and think about this solid support, these solid supports we're going to talk about of joy found here in Peter's letter. So we want to start by remembering the first support of joy, of invincible joy, that is found in the benefits of our faith, in the resurrection life, in the inheritance, and in the protection that God has over us. But Peter goes on. He wants to talk to us now about the proof of our faith. That's the second support of invincible joy. It's the proof of our faith. Joy is connected to faith. Our faith in Christ brings joy. We believe we have access to the resurrection life now, an inheritance in the future, and are protected by God until then. And that does bring joy if we really think about that. But what if, what if our faith was not true? What if it was found false? What if we have doubts about whether we're really trusting in Christ? You see, if we're not assured of the genuineness of our faith in Christ, then guess what happens to joy? It vanishes. If you're not assured of your faith, if you don't know for certain that you are trusting now in Christ and your faith is genuine, you lose joy. Have you ever been in a crisis of faith? Have you ever been with somebody struggling in a crisis of faith? Would you describe them or would you have described yourself as joyful? I've seen it. It's, it's agonizing to think about those things and to wonder, am I in Christ? This, that kind of doubt does, only brings angst and despair. And so Peter assures his readers and us today that God has a remedy for this problem. And that remedy is trials. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials test faith and refine faith. And they provide the proof of the genuineness of our faith. That's the second solid support of joy in our lives as believers, is that we have our faith tested and see the genuineness of it. Let's look at how God uses trials to prove the genuineness of our faith in Christ. First, we must say that trials are not enjoyable in themselves. Peter says this, right? He says to his readers in verse 6 that they may have been grieved by various trials. The word grief is not a joyful word. It is a painful word. Trials are grievous. They are painful. They are difficult. The author of Hebrews, when he referred to trials, spoke of them in the sense of discipline. And he said, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Ask any child when they get disciplined if that's their favorite time. It is not. They, they do, nobody wants to get disciplined. Nobody enjoys the pain of a trial brought into their lives. But it's what 
trials produce that is enjoyable. The same author uh, to the, uh, the letter of Hebrews says that discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Paul links suffering, the suffering of trials, with the production of endurance, character, and hope. And James, we're getting all the apostles in the New Testament here, right? James tells us to rejoice in trials because they produce steadfastness. So in life, as if you've lived any bit of life, you know we experience real troubles that are painful, unpleasant, and grievous. But these trials do not destroy joy because joy is not the same as happiness. Instead, through what they produce, they provide a solid support for joy, real proof of the evidence of our faith. The producing of steadfastness, endurance, and character in our lives so we know our faith is real. Now, when we're going through a trial, the burning question is often, especially when they're difficult, heart-wrenching trials, we ask the question, why? Why is this happening to me? We look for meaning and purpose in the midst of the pain. Now, biblically speaking, Paul in the book of Romans links pain ultimately to hope because he sees God's purpose in it. But you know what happens when we cease to believe that there's a purpose to the pain? We lose hope and we fall into despair. So Peter wants us to know that God has placed three boundaries around the pain that God allows and places in our life so that we know that it is always under his control and it is part of his good purposes in our lives. He says this, Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Notice the word now. Trials occur now in our earthly fallen existence. In heaven, in the glory of heaven, trials are no more. We're done with them. Our present life feels long now, but in comparison to eternity, it is just a little while. Now, secondly, trials only come, and I, boy, I praise the Lord for this, if necessary. There is no unnecessary trial in your life that you have gone through, are going through, or will go through. You may not know the reason why. God doesn't always tell us why he does what he does especially in our lives individually. But there is a reason and there is a purpose in it. God has hand-selected the trials in your life and he only appoints the trials that you will face in your life that are necessary. Not any more, not any less. And thirdly, as another boundary that God places, God uses various trials. I like to say this is a kind of unboundary. And what I mean is that is God is not limited by our imagination and by what we think the circumstances of around, around us 
should bring. And this is good because it means that God can do exactly what he wants to, in, in forming the trials for us in any shape and size to make them hand-tailored just for you, for your growth, for your good. And it still may leave a question here. I've often asked this question myself. I've wondered why I've had it easier than others. Or maybe you've asked the other question, why have you had it harder than others? Why has God allowed more suffering in your life or less suffering than others? And the reality is we just cannot know. But we have this assurance that God has specifically chosen these things and crafted them for you, for your good. And so it's an, it's an act of faith. We put our faith, our trust, that God is doing his good work through these trials to help you grow. And he acts wisely. He acts with precision in all the difficulties and experience, uh, painful experiences you go through. In verse 7 of First um, Peter, we see that Peter points to the purpose of these trials. They are given to us by God so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's always a purpose to the pain of trials, and that is to refine our faith. Peter gives us a great, a beautiful word picture. It's that of, you might say, raw gold or gold ore that you might find out in a mine. And if any of you have studied geology at all, you know you don't just find bars of gold out in caves, right? You don't start digging and find a beautifully shaped gold, uh, gold coin, it's, it's raw, it's, it's impure, it's mixed with all sorts of other minerals. It has to be uh, extracted from other rocks. It's only beautiful and only useful when it's extracted and refined in the fire. So gold is refined, uh, just as gold is refined in the intensity of fire and then made precious, so too our faith, like gold, is refined by trials. And it is of great worth. It is of great worth. Very precious. Our faith is even of greater worth than gold. The treasure of the genuineness of our faith upholds joy in our lives. Now, you may be thinking... And maybe in your own experience, as you go through trials, trials don't seem to bring joy. <laughs> They're difficult, right? And you probably aren't uh, inclined to want to rejoice when you experience a trial, when you have difficulty in your life. I know I'm not. Often when we experience trials, we don't rejoice, but we grumble and we complain. Or... Or we're just crushed in, in, in great agony. And I, I say this with care because there are some real painful difficulties and trials that, we're going, that people are going through today. 
But the challenge in the midst of the trial is to value the value the reward, the joy, value the genuineness of our faith, our faith in Christ, to value that faith more than the temporary comforts that we, we long to have in this world. I think of myself and I ask, do I, do I love the comfort in this life that, that, that ought to be, but for sin, more than the reward of the age to come? The reward that is awaiting us is praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The shared praise and glory and honor. We get to partake in that with our Savior, the Lord Jesus. A genuine, true, and pure faith is greater treasure to us than any momentary comfort in this life. And this is, like I said, not to make light of any suffering that you're going through today. Or maybe you've endured for years or decades. Some, some of you have been going through suffering for a long time. No, but it's to say that God is using this in your life to bring, uh, bring you to joy of this great reward that will come in the age to come by valuing the proof of your faith more than the present comfort in this life. So that's the second support of joy. We have the benefits of our faith. We have the proof of our faith. And lastly, we have the object of our faith. That's the third support of invincible joy, is the object of our faith. See, Peter goes on in verses 8 and 9 to say, Though you have not seen him, the Lord Jesus, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The great deception of our modern world is a utopia of things. We imagine that joy and satisfaction and contentment are found in our possessions. A house, a car, technological innovation, personal devices. Just put what you want on that list. But it's not true. Sometimes we can even imagine that the kingdom of heaven is a place that is great merely because of the great things we'll receive for ourselves there. But if we're not careful, we can transport materialism into our vision of heaven. What makes heaven great? What makes heaven great is that we're with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're with God the Father. We have unhindered access to him. God is what makes heaven great. Jesus Christ is the jewel of heaven. We await a city in which things are replaced, which with material, the focus on things and stuff is replaced with the realities that they serve. Think about the book of Revelation, right? When you get to the end, John says this, he saw, says, I saw no temple, for the, its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the lamp is the Lamb. The joy of heaven is God himself. 
And in this passage, the focus is on Jesus. Jesus is the object of our delight. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Now, Peter had seen Jesus and he loved him, but those to whom he wrote had not seen him. And I'm thankful because none of us in this room have seen Jesus in the flesh. Yet we love him. And this is a love with real substance. A love that leads to trust. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. You know, we all have our favorite movies or books, I'm sure. I love Lord of the Rings, and I love some of the characters in the books that you know, I read and, and movies I watch. I, I love the character Gandalf. Maybe you like, um, this will dating me here a lot, you know, you have movies like um, Braveheart. Maybe you, you enjoyed the character William Wallace. You know, you're like, got all excited, wanted to be like, take on some sort of big challenge after watching the movie. Maybe uh, some of you uh, might like other characters like Anne of Green Gables and just like how she's getting involved in people's lives and how it, what a dynamic kind of person she is. Or, but you know, you can love these characters. You can really identify with them, but you can't trust them. They aren't alive. They aren't, some of them weren't even real people. But Jesus... The Lord Jesus Christ we can love and we can trust in. He is real and he is alive this very day and he's at work in us. He is the object of our love and trust. Though we have not seen him with our physical eyes, faith is not conditioned upon sight. Jesus made this clear to Thomas when he said to him, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It is our love and belief in Jesus, the object of our faith, which is the third solid support of joy, so that we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is a joy that seeks for words but finds none. It is filled with glory because it is a foretaste of the age to come in the kingdom of heaven. It is Jesus that brings this joy. He is the engine of joy in our lives. You know that saying? You've seen the bumper sticker? No Jesus, no joy. And then no, K-N-O-W, Jesus, no joy. That's absolutely right. If you do not know Jesus Christ personally, you cannot know joy. But if you know him, if you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, then joy is available to you in him. You see, Jesus is the creator and source of all life. He has life in himself, and he makes us live. True life springs up and wells up out of us because of him. Listen to what the Apostle John said in the Gospels. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And again, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, 
If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then again, to the Samaritan woman at the well, he said, everyone who drinks this water, this physical water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus, Jesus is spiritual water. He is life. We can only truly live if we live in him. There are millions, there are billions of people on earth today who have only physical life. Our neighbors, our classmates, our coworkers, are many of them, perhaps most of them, are the walking dead. They have physical life, but no true life in them, no spiritual life. But we who love and believe in Jesus are alive. So let us live like it by looking to Jesus for this life daily. Knowing Jesus is life. It is the engine, the source of power and joy, invincible joy in our lives. It is invincible because Jesus is risen from the dead and no one can take the joy of knowing him away from us. He can no longer die and we are with him. We are connected to and joined to his resurrection life through faith in his name. Now finally, Peter says that we are obtaining the outcome of our faith. It's the last verse here in verse 9. We are obtaining the outcome of, our faith, of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So we know we are saved by grace through faith. This is a result of our faith in Christ. Uh, is salvation from the deliverance of the wrath to come and entrance into heaven. But we can enjoy that salvation today, not just in the coming kingdom. We live in the foretaste of heaven. Think about it this way. Have you guys ever gotten up in the morning uh, before the sun rose? I mean, really before the sun rose, when it's dark, right? It's, and all of a sudden, you, I did this once when I was at Cal Poly. I was up on the roof of um, uh, the, one of the buildings out off of campus, and I was watching the sunrise. And you know, at first, it's totally dark, but then you start to see light on the horizon. And you don't, see, you don't see the sun at all, but it just gets lighter and lighter and lighter and lighter. And then all of a sudden, you see that little crescent outline of the sun, and just in a, less than a minute, it's, it's, it's there. But our lives are like that. We are obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. We are being transformed in the image of Christ. It's like that light before the sun shows. We are being changed little by little, little by little. The light is filling our lives. And then one day, Christ will come and we'll be like him. Either he'll come to this earth or he'll take us to be with him. And that is, uh, we're in the process of obtaining salvation and that will be salvation for us here. 
And so I want to say, just to summarize here, think of a stool. Uh, joy, invincible joy, rests on three solid supports. Just like a stool is made solid and firm by three legs, right? You can't have two, it'll fall over. If you have four legs, sometimes it's wobbly, but if you have three legs on a stool, it never shakes, it's firm. And the three legs uh, that support invincible joy are the benefits of our faith, the proof of our faith, and the object of our faith. So what does this mean for us? We've talked a lot about the passage. So how should our lives be different? What should we do after we leave this room? Uh, what should we do during this week when we face trials, when we go through things? How do we have joy, invincible joy? What does it look like? Well, I want to first say that um, I've called it invincible joy for a reason, and that's because Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 20 that no one will take the joy, this joy from you. According to Peter, James, and Paul, even trials and suffering are used to cause this joy or uh, are used to, as a cause for joy because of what they bring. And so what I conclude from that is we have to believe that joy is always available to us. No matter what, joy is always available Whatever situation you find yourselves in, you can choose joy. I know I said this is not the same as happiness. You can be joyful and crying at the same time, but you can choose joy. Know that you will not choose joy, however, if you treat it as an occasional reaction to circumstances in life instead of a habit of life springing from walking in the Spirit. In other words, joy is a battle. You have to fight for it daily. Make it your battle to be joyful in the Lord. Tighten your grip on heaven. Loosen your hold on earth. Think often of the heavenly benefits you have, your inheritance, right, that, that's awaiting you in Christ. Think often of Jesus. Find ways to keep him in your thoughts during the day. Help yourself by reading about reading the Gospels, meditating on the person of Jesus, praying to him and writing in a journal your thoughts to him. Sing songs that remind you of his goodness and glory. Talk to others about him. When facing trials, trials are difficult. So allow yourself space to grieve because there's real evil and real pain in the world and you, we don't rejoice in evil. We don't rejoice in the pain, but... Remind yourselves that what you're experiencing now is temporary and it is God's gracious work of love to grow you in some way. It's a sign of, your God, of God's love, not his displeasure. God knows that your most precious possession on earth is your faith, that you're going to cash in for great reward in the kingdom. And he's remo removing the impurities of your faith because he loves you. Now, what if you fail? What if a trial comes to you and you, you fail? I get bummed out when I fail in a trial, don't you? You know what? Remind yourself that God is not surprised by, by that. Even your failure is a tool in his hand to refine you. Think about Peter, the guy who wrote this book. Peter did not want to suffer. He wanted to avoid the reality of the cross. So how did Peter get to the place where he denied Jesus, and then he went on to say to other believers, 
Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. How did he get there? Didn't it include some massive failure? Denying his own master, uh, separating himself from the Gentiles when he knew better and had to be rebuked by Paul? So choose to rejoice in the trial even when you have to learn a, a lesson through your own failure. And I'll end with this here. I think joy is so important today. The political, social, and economic clouds of our time are only going to darken and burst over our heads, resulting in great disaster around us. I'm becoming more and more convinced that the only way to live successfully through this time as a believer in Christ, through the times that have been appointed to us, is to suffer through them with joy. It was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. It was the knowledge of a better possession and, abide, and an abiding one that caused the readers of the book of Hebrews to joyfully accept the plundering of their property. It was the joy born from the love of Jesus that caused Peter and the other apostles to rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. We can be swept away by the disaster of our time, or we can suffer through it with joy and provide the occasion for others around us to wonder at how we have such joy. And it has been my prayer over the last several months, oh God, give me courage for our times. Maybe we will have to suffer greatly. Maybe we will have to be imprisoned and persecuted. God, grant us to suffer through with joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the invincible joy that is ours in Christ. God, this is not a human thing. This is not a matter of, of just working ourselves up into a frenzy. Oh Lord, there's pain in this world. There's real suffering. And God, you've called us to follow the example of Christ who suffered, who suffered the cross. Oh Lord, help us to be like Peter, to be able to say, Let, let's follow in the footsteps of our master. Help us, Lord, to have the courage to suffer with joy. And I ask this because we need it, Lord, and we cry out to you for help. In the name of our precious and wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen. And brothers and sisters, what a joy it is to see you this morning. Thank you for uh, welcoming our family and um, hearing the word. And I want to just go ahead and dismiss you and say, uh, enjoy the lunch, enjoy your afternoon, and God be with you and grant you joy.